This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Public meeting is going to be held uh, later on in the springtime now in regards to a proposed firearm discharge bylaw. Now, when this was announced a little while ago by City of Hamilton staff, quite a few people in some of the rural areas got quite upset about this because they thought this was going to lead to a firearm ban. So to get some clarity on that, we uh, want to invite Brenda Johnson on the program. Brenda, of course, is the counselor for Ward 11 for the City of Hamilton and very much involved in the negotiations and, uh, and of course, with these public meetings. Brenda, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. All right, let's, maybe let's start right at the beginning here with the clarity on this. Why, first of all, are we holding these meetings? Well, first of all, the bylaw has not even been reviewed um, or updated since amalgamation. And so the bylaw actually is included a map. The map is where you're allowed to hunt and where you're not allowed to hunt. Since amalgamation, as you know, this city has grown substantially in the in the uh, residential areas, especially in the areas that you represent. Absolutely. So, the if you just to give it some context, if you were standing at Queenston Motors right now at the corner of 56 Highway and and Upper Centennial, you could stand on their property, walk across the road, and and hunt on the other side of the road. So and there was there was a lot of um, overlapping of where the development was encroaching on the firearms mapping. So if you were to look at the map, take a look at where the the firearms are allowed, and where the residential, the new residential developments have have begun or completed, they actually overlap. So the hunters theoretically could hunt right next door to your your backyard. So there was to ensure the public safety, we had to take a look at the mapping and 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 push the mapping back a little bit so that it, there would be a buffer zone between where the residential properties ended and where farming, or sorry, where, where um, hunting was allowed. So it, it's, it, and it did create a lot of angst. There was um, rumors going around that we were banning hunting. There were rumors going around that this was all because of an incident that happened in my ward. Uh, both are not true. Um, the gun club that's sitting on, on Highway 20 and Fifth Road right now, that was going to be um, uh, illegal. That's not true. Uh, Upper Stony Creek um, is not allowed to have any hunting at all. Well, that was the misconception because in, in Stony Creek alone, there was, there was a real confusion there. Upper Stony Creek is not allowed to fire any dis- uh, of, sorry, discharge any firearms at all never have been allowed, yet Lower Stony Creek was allowed to have hunting with crossbows and, and bow and arrows. So there was a lot of housekeeping that needed to be cleared up. So what the staff decided to do was to do an update on the, on the firearms um, discharge bylaw. And they brought together a, a stakeholders uh, group, which is, is phenomenal. They have the Ontario Federate, uh, Federal um, Firearms uh, hunters and anglers, we have the police department involved, uh, we have conservation authorities involved, and they've been sitting down, they sat down with the terms of reference, they sat down and, and, and did a couple of uh, public consultations prior so they could get a list of things of, of what was concerning residents. And this is all to ensure public safety. What, what are some of the concerns you've heard? Well, one of the concerns is that, the, again, the fire, um, the fire map, the, the mapping for firearms was too close to subdivisions. They were literally across the street. On one side of the street, you can um, you can hunt, and on the other side of the street is is a full development of of two three hundred homes. So the maps were out of date. Uh, the bylaw was really difficult to interpret. It was actually different wording than what the Ministry of Natural Resources was was putting down as their definitions. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot of confusion. So this is really just to align the bylaw that the Hamilton City of Hamilton is trying to adopt, and to align it with the Ministry of Natural Resources bylaw. So everyone's consistent. All right. So essentially, there are there are two areas of concern here. I mean, obviously, forget about staff for a second. Let's talk about the public reaction to this. There are there are the gun owners and people that that like to use these lands. Uh, they're concerned that they're going to be pushed off uh, and, and that there could be some restrictions, and, and we need to clarify that. Right. Uh, and there are also safety concerns so from people that have moved into some of these subdivisions that are saying, wait a second, there's a guy 100 yards away that's firing a rifle. I don't think that's very safe. My kids play on those streets. So, I mean, this is th- th- there's a, a potential here for some pretty heavy-duty conflict here, Brenda. Well, there is and there isn't. I think that the, and, and let's make this very clear, responsible hunters do not want to be hunting in, in your backyard. That's, that's, that's a gimme. 
So we have to get that cleared up right away because all the hunters that I have had encounters with, all the people I've met, um, are very responsible. They want to hunt, but they want to do it safely. They don't want to put the public in jeopardy. So this mapping that has been put on prior to amalgamation, because we had, as you know, six different municipalities with six different bylaws. The, the former city of Hamilton did not have any hunting whatsoever because it was all um, urban area. But the five other municipalities all had their maps out where you could hunt, where you could not, but it did not take into consideration the development that was growing into those areas. So specifically, as I said before, anything that was south of Rymel Road, uh, you see Summit Park up there, you see uh, a new Canadian Tire just came in, we have Walmart up there, Queenston Motors is up there, uh, several banks. And yet, right at the property line, somebody could be hunting. So well, I mean, you've got the the new Bishop Rye is not that new. I guess Bishop Ryan High School up there. I mean, absolutely. The, 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 uh, the, and and the urban growth that has gone up there on the south side of Rymel Road is, is is incredible over the last five years, especially. Absolutely, and I and I keep referring to that area because that was the biggest area of concern. But there are still some other areas. That well, yeah, and it's not unique to your area. We should clarify that because I know Councillor Ferguson out in Ancaster. I mean, there is a, a wide area of, of rural part of Ancaster that I would imagine falls under the same situation. Oh, absolutely. So what we're trying to convey to the public is we're trying to respect the responsible hunter who wants to hunt in a safe zone, and we also want to ensure that public safety is number one factor. So it was really great that we we brought the stakeholders on on board and and they started to look at the maps and went, oh yeah, you're right, because this is this is ridiculous to have somebody's backyard and then right at the property line they're allowed to hunt. So, the, again, the responsible hunter does not want that scenario. They want to be hunting where it's safe, uh, it's, it's away from the, the public, and they can, and they can do what, they, what they're set out to do. Um, and also the definition of firearms was, was really sketchy as well because crossbows and, and bow and arrows are not the same as, as, as a, a rifle or um, an, any type of gun. So there, there was that that needed to be cleaned up as well. So I, I really want to reassure that the, the public that that's our number one concern is public safety, but it's also the responsible hunter's number one concern is public safety as well. So that's why we brought this, this stakeholders group together to take a look at the bylaw, to take a look at the definition so that everybody's on the same page and that the public can be reassured that the responsible hunter, the police, the city are all on, one, on, uh, on the same uh, issues. So, Brenda, when, when these meetings take place, then, uh, what's what's the goal here? Are you trying to get input from the citizens, or is this to inform the citizens? Because, obviously, the staff must have some idea of, of how they want to, to create solutions to this. Well, actually, when we had the public consultation meetings at the very beginning, it helped everyone to understand how much confusion was involved in this bylaw. So when we had them initially, I think the first one was actually in Glambrook, and then the second one was in Ancaster, and I think the third one was out in the Flamborough area. And, and as these public meetings were happening, uh, issues were brought forward, some from the concerned citizens, some from the, the responsible hunters. And then we started to realize just how fragmented the, the bylaw was, that the bylaw needed to be tightened up, but it all, in, in the sense that everybody understood what the, what the definitions were, where is the mapping, actually where is the mapping going to be. So they're going to be releasing maps soon to let the public know what the proposed changes will be. Uh, and where the mapping will be pushed back, and in some ways it will grow. Uh, so I think that's I think that's where the misconception comes in, where people say we're looking at the firearms uh, discharge bylaw. Everybody just automatically assumes that we're going to let either hunting happen from one end of the city to the other, or we're just going to ban it completely, and that's completely untrue. I mean, the arbitrary thing to, to suggest here is just move everything south. But I, I'm wondering if the hunters are going to be concerned about that because clearly, I mean, there's still an urban boundary there, at, you know, the city limits. And so, I mean, you're basically reducing the amount of space and, and size of, of the, uh, the hunting areas then if you were to simply do that. And, and in some ways, it's realistic to reduce some of that, that space because if you've got residential homes sitting right there, the hunters don't want to hunt there in anyways. So it pushes the map back a little bit. And in some areas, it's actually going to grow because there was no bylaw to allow hunting at all. 
So there's going to be, um, and this is why it was great to have the stakeholders on board as well, because then they're looking at the mapping and they're realizing that that this that you're absolutely right. Where where the urban growth is going, there should be no hunting, and there should be a buffer zone between where that urban development stops and where hunting should start. So I believe it's 100 meters that they're looking at right now between the last property line and where hunting is is allowed to go. And again, the responsible hunter, in my opinion, would welcome that because they don't want to put the the public in jeopardy. They don't want uh, to have residents complaining that they're hunting in their backyards because it's just not safe. Have there been any incidents? That, that have sparked the, this this um, move, this review? Well, in the time that I've been in this office, and from what I understand historically, there's always been some incidences, but I can always, to be honest with you, I can always bring it back to uh, someone who has not got their hunting license, someone who is not a responsible hunter. Uh, I've had farmhouses that have been rented out in the rural area, and you get a big bonfire going, and you get somebody out there with a gun and or with a rifle and start sh- randomly shooting at things, and and that's not responsible, and that's not the responsible hunter. This is just somebody who thinks, I'm out in the rural area, I can do whatever I want. And another another misconception that came out was good farming practices, a farmer is allowed to discharge a firearm to protect his livestock. So the farmers were a little bit, have some angst there, because they thought we were going to ban them from doing that as well. And that's not the truth, that the farming practices will go on as usual. So, again, this is really to clear up a lot of myths. It's to clear up a lot of misconceptions. And, and I think at the end of the day, the responsible hunter and the public will feel a lot better. That's another element to this as well, those people that do own rural properties. Because I've known a few people that lived out in the, Brent, uh, the Glenbrook uh, area, out near Binbrook there uh, specifically, and, and, and make no bones about the fact that, you know, there are, there's vermin, there are predatory animals that are, that are out there, and they've got to protect their land and their farm. That's a whole different scenario, isn't it? That's right, absolutely. And, and 65% of Hamilton is rural, and it's also uh, agriculture. So we have a lot of farms out there. We have a lot of corporate farms out there, uh, livestock. Uh, it's a billion-dollar industry. We, that's where Maple Leaf and Canada Bread decided to, to, to come here to Hamilton because getting closer to the source of where their, their, um, their product is coming from is, makes a lot of sense. So you've got a farmer out there. He's got a lot of livestock. You've got some coyotes in the area. Uh, yes, there are wolves. And so these are, this is, it's, it's going to take away from their farming pra- uh, practices where they want to have their, their livestock live happily <laughs> and healthy. And when you've got a predator out there, then the farmer has every right in the world to, to eliminate the predator. So, so where do the rumors about trying to uh, do a ban on, on guns actually come from? It's, by the, and to reiterate, if somebody's just joining the conversation, that's not the intent here. That's not what's going to happen. But, right. but have you heard that opinion? Are there people that would like to see an outright ban? Um, that would like to see it banned completely, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I haven't heard anybody say they want it banned completely. I think the the, the gist of, of the majority of the emails I'm getting is they want to make sure that it's done safely. So keep it away from the residential growth. Keep it away from, from where the public gather. So this is rec centers that are out in the rural area as well. Um, and that was the other thing about the bylaw is that, you know, cemeteries and, and, and rec centers and uh, even arenas, they weren't identified properly on the mapping. So, again, it's to identify everything on the mapping so the responsible hunter knows where he can and where he or she can or cannot hunt and do it safely and away from the public. Brenda Johnson, of course, the counselor for Ward 11. Uh, Brenda, thanks so much for the update and for the clarity on this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and and as you said earlier, they're going to be having about three meetings, and they're coming up in in February and March, and uh, before it comes to council for uh, final approval, because they're constantly getting public input. So please don't hesitate to call my office or uh, to call uh, Robert, and I'm not going to get his his last name properly, to be honest with you, because it. it it's a long name, but please um, get a hold of, of of the staff and let them know that this is this is uh, a concern of yours and where the concern is because we want to make sure we have all the information. We want our goal to to get this bylaw to be uh, clear, concise, and and everybody understands it at the end of the day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Russia has announced 
that is going to be withdrawing warships from uh, Syrian waters. Now, a lot of uh, observers are wondering just what the implications of such a move are, both politically and militarily. Joining us to talk about this is Simon Palomar, Research Assistant for the Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, first of all, thank you for the time. Happy New Year. It's good to have you with us again today. Well, happy New Year, Bill. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the Russian move. This was actually announced, I guess, or at least the intention to do this was announced in late December. Were you surprised at that time that uh, that Putin has decided to pull back? Yeah, um, it's not too surprising. There's a couple things we have to keep in mind. Um, I think your listeners will recall probably hearing about uh, talks between Turkey and Russia mm-hmm. that began in December, and this is really it became clear that. The uh, the Syrian government, supported by Russian air power and some Russian troops on the ground, and uh, Iranian militias, that in Aleppo they were winning the battle for Aleppo, and Aleppo, of course, you know, fell last month to the government. And as Aleppo was falling, uh, the Turkish government, who which is probably the single single government with the most influence amongst the uh, various opposition groups in Syria began talking uh, quite seriously with the Russian government, seeing that, you know, Aleppo was lost and trying to get something, some benefit out of Aleppo's loss, whether it's, you know, uh, if they give up Aleppo, allowing uh, rebel troops to withdraw to other parts of the country, something along those lines. There was a real, real pressure in Turkey to get something done. So with Aleppo essentially, you know, falling to the government, uh, this does this did give uh, the the Russians a bit of room to maneuver. Uh, the ship that in particular that they're talking about withdrawing right now, the Admiral Kuznetsov, which is uh, an aircraft carrier, only arrived in Syrian waters back in November. So it's only been on station for you know maybe two full months now, and it provided some very useful support to the. Uh, Syrian government during the Battle of Aleppo. You know, they had that ability to uh, get aircraft off the ship very quickly, get them into the air over Aleppo and hit rebel targets much faster than aircraft could arrive from Russia, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Admiral Kuznetsov is it's an older ship that's in rough shape. It's had a couple of problems while deployed. Uh, they had a couple of incidents where uh, Russian uh, pilots crashed their uh, aircraft on uh, in, in attempts to land due to problems with the the arrestor cables, which are the cables to help the aircraft land on the aircraft carrier. So this does give the Russians an opportunity to you know pull the Kuznetsov back if it's not in fact up to the task. Uh, it gives them some breathing room to let their troops uh, you know recoup, rest, etc. And uh, it's also not the first time that Russia has announced that they are withdrawing troops from Syria. This happened back, I believe, it was in March or April of this past year. Uh, Vladimir Putin said, oh, we're going to start drawing down troops. They pulled a few aircraft out of Syria, but then, of course, they've been redeployed. So it's not too surprising. It might just be uh, a matter of, like I said, giving uh, forces, Russian forces, time to recoup since things are going their way right now in Syria. And it is also a matter of, you know, the, the Turks lost the battle for Aleppo, and if the battle for Aleppo is not raging, this gives Russia the opportunity to draw down at least a bit in the short run. Let me ask you, go back just, to, if we could, to, to those talks that you talked about uh, in December uh, that were held in Russia, in Moscow, between uh, the Russians and, and, and Turkey at that time. Uh, noticeable by the absence, obviously, and, and with, the, with the alliance, was uh, was any representative representation from the U.S. as we were talking peace talks uh, in Syria right now? Was, was that a, a diplomatic slap in the face to the outgoing Obama administration, an intended slap in the face? I think it was uh, certainly a slap in the face, but I think it was also a reflection of reality. Um, the fact is, the United States has been quite they've been very careful about who they get into bed with in Syria. After the the challenges of Afghanistan, of Iraq, um, the, the bad memory of Afghanistan in the 1980s when the, the, the guerrillas and the freedom fighters that you supported then became your enemies in the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, there was some real tentativeness on the part of the U.S. And that's not to say that the Americans have not been involved in the Syrian civil war. They have. They've given certain... Syrian rebel units, uh, very useful anti-tank weapons, provided them with some training. Uh, they've also helped uh, 
put together what you call a command room or a joint operations center where various rebel groups could uh, get in contact with each other and plan operations. The Americans have been involved, but not to the same extent that the Turks have in terms of directly arming uh, rebels, providing them with intelligence, providing them with financial support. So it was, on the one hand, a slap in the face to the Obama administration, you know, uh, making it clear that you're not going to determine the fate of Syria, you know, the Kremlin is, Ankara is, but also a reflection of reality that because the United States didn't want to become embroiled in the conflict, it meant that it means that they get less of a say in how it finally ends. Well, it was a rather uneasy partnership to begin with, wasn't it, uh, Simon, when you look back on this? I mean, you know, first of all, Obama doesn't like Putin, and, and, and that's mutual. Uh, second of all, they didn't like the idea of, of trying to back Assad, and, and, and that was always something that I, I think the Obama administration found distasteful. So they were there, but not with, the, with their heart and soul, clearly. No, uh, not with their heart and soul. And there was also, there's also been, let's be frank, some strategic ambivalence, to use a fancy term, um, on the part of the Obama administration. Early in the Civil War, they really doubled down on getting rid of Assad, making it clear, making it clear to the world that they thought the, the Assad government is illegitimate. You know, it's opened fire on its uh, own people, killed civilians, abducted uh, protesters, tortured them, etc. This is a, a, a really nasty government that does horrible things runs rampant over the rule of law, trashes human rights, they can't stand. They're going to have to exit either peacefully or otherwise. And that seemed fine. for the, You know, in 2011, that seemed to be a fairly reasonable stance. We'd seen what happened in, in Libya when, a, when another strongman dictator tried to, tried to stop, a, stop a, an incipient protest movement. That protest movement turned into a war. That war ousted him. Seemed reasonable at the time. Once ISIS reemerged from Iraq, invaded eastern Syria, and began its, uh, its rampage across the region, the Americans said, well, you know, we're going to deprioritize getting rid of Assad, and we're going to tell all of our rebel allies in the country, you know, fight ISIS first, fight the government second. And, and for many rebel groups, you know, they were saying, well, no, we need to fight whoever is near us, whoever is threatening us, whether if it's ISIS that's threatening us in this month, we'll fight them. If it's the government fighting us this month, we're going to fight them back. And the Americans never made it clear how they were going to prioritize that fight. You know, Vladimir Putin, on the other hand, when he first, you know, ordered ships to the Mediterranean and ordered airstrikes from from Russian soil into Syria. He made it clear that he was going to prioritize fighting the regi- the, the regime's enemies. That he was going to support the government of Bashar al-Assad first. And though they used the rhetoric of "oh, we're fighting ISIS, we're fighting ISIS," the fact is, especially for the first nine, ten, eleven months until very recently, the Russian forces were not fighting ISIS, and in Aleppo, Russian forces were not really. No, they were bombing. They were bombing uh, rebel forces, weren't they? They were bombing moderate rebels. But they made the clear decision that we want to preserve the, the government in Syria first and worry about everything else second. They prioritize. And everybody, there's, I think, uh, a real important debate about whether or not that's wise on the part of the Russian government. But in the short run, it made their, their efforts to change the tide of the war much more effective because their, their efforts were much more concentrated and focused than the American efforts. So notwithstanding the ambivalence between Russia and, and, and the Obama administration in this situation, I'm always puzzled and, and, and fascinated, I guess at the same time, Simon, about the relationship between Turkey and Russia, uh, which is hot and cold. I mean, they, they can be the closest of allies sometimes and, and butting each other's heads at other times. Yeah, the, the relationship between the two countries the last couple of years has been quite interesting. You know, I have some colleagues who are quite convinced that in fact, uh, Russia and Turkey will continue to work together in the future. I'm, I'm highly suspicious of that. I mean, they have too many, there are too, there are too many issues where they're on the exact opposite sides of them, whether it's the fate of uh, Crimean Tatars in Crimea who, are, who have uh, ancestral ties to Turkey, for example, whether it's the route of natural gas pipelines through the Black Sea where 
Turkey and Russia have competing interests, sometimes they can get along, but sometimes they have competing interests, or whether it's in Syria, where they want very different outcomes for the war, they're almost always on the exact opposite side of issues. But where the two do get along is that both of them have a very poor relationship with the United States, and even Turkey, despite being a member of NATO, has a very poor relationship with the United States. Um, and both, in both governments, both uh, Vladimir Putin's government in Russia and Recep uh, Erdogan's government in Turkey, both of them have very, very much been focused on internal order, on solidifying their personal rule and their party's rule. And because of that, they've been willing to make alliances and make deals where it's useful. So for Vladimir Putin, I mean, Russia and the United States have uh, opposing interests, but Vladimir Putin also finds it useful to use the United States as a a villain and a foil that he can explain, you know, all these bad things that are happening in the Russian economy. It's oh, it's because of the American sanctions. Well, the American sanctions are part of it, but there's also tremendous long-term problems in the Russian economy. For uh, for uh, Erdogan, this coup, for example, this attempted coup this past July, he was very quick to point his finger at Abdullah Gul, who is an exiled Turkish cleric who lives in the United States, who's an opponent of Erdogan. But Abdullah Gul mostly funds charities and 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 uh, Islamic schools that that profess a very moderate version of political Islam, which is a direct challenge to Erdogan's rule. Erdogan immediately used the pre used the fact that Abdullah Gul was in the United States to say, "Look, that's why we had a coup because it was planned from in the United States. Whether the Americans were directly involved, they let it happen because of the ringleaders in the United States." And he can use that to deflect blame, deflect uh, deflect attention from the civil war with the Kurds in the southeast, uh, deflect attention from Turkey's economic problems, and say, "Look, the Americans are the bad guys." And in that regard, the the Russians and the Turks realize that sometimes, you know, they have their differences, but if they can, you know, work closely on very select issues, such as pushing the United States out of Syria, saying you're going to get no say in it, it works to both their benefit because now they don't have to deal with the United States, who is still the you know the biggest elephant in the room on any given day, and only deal with each other. But in the long run they have too many things that are that are rather diametrically opposed. And uh, so far, you know, both sides I think are maybe a bit sick of fighting in Syria or more accurately supporting their various sides in Syria. So in the short run I think they're gonna continue to work constructively towards some kind of deal to end the war there. But it, it could be rough sledding at times. Let me ask you about where these people are going to be going. And we, we've talked over the last number of months, Simon, uh, about Russian interests in Crimea. Of course, there's a great deal of concern in Ukraine and, and their borders and, and Russian troops. Uh, is, is there any concern at this stage right now that uh, with the, the withdrawal that Russia's making right now, that those people may actually just be deployed to one of those other areas? You know, it's possible, but I think probably unlikely at the moment. One thing that Russia has been very careful about is not using very much air power in uh, in Ukraine. They still like the story that, you know, that they can deny taking too strong a hand in Ukraine. Well, they they've, uh, Vladimir Putin has admitted now that, well, yes, in fact, we did send troops to Crimea. Of course we did. He admits it, you know, after the fact in eastern Ukraine, for example, in uh, Luhansk and uh, Donbass, Kremlin's official line is still that there are no Russian troops there, that uh, the armed organizations seen in eastern Ukraine are purely you know, Ukrainian patriots who are opposed to the new government in Kiev. And, uh, and well, we uh, sympathize with them. We're not providing them with arms. There are no Russian soldiers fighting alongside them. It's easier, however, to hide infantry or even tanks if you can whisk them across the border. You can come up with some plausible story about how these Ukrainian separatists got them. It's a lot harder if you start flying airstrikes over eastern Ukraine and claiming that all oh, those are, in fact, uh, you know, Ukrainian rebels who got their hands on you know modern Russian strike aircraft. It's a bit harder to to tell that story. So, General Kuznetsov, you know, it's withdrawing. It won't be. It will probably not be used in operations in eastern Ukraine. However, if the drawdown in Syria continues, which I'll be a bit surprised if they 
withdraw the large numbers of of support troops and special forces they have in Syria, but some of those special forces could certainly be redeployed to areas around eastern Ukraine to help the uh, rebels there, because that's very much what the what Russian special forces are good at. They uh, they're good at clandestine warfare. They're good at fighting these small wars uh, quietly, slipping across borders, providing support and getting back. So there's certainly a possibility there. And I think with, you know, we've gone, you know, 15 minutes now without mentioning Donald Trump. So we've Well, I, I was just about it. to. Uh, that's <laughs> that's the wild card uh, in here. I mean, because I've heard yeah. speculation, uh, Simon, uh, that that obviously Trump uh, takes office on, on the 20th of January. Uh, Putin obviously feels as if he's going to get a much better uh, sounding board, much better deal with Trump than he is with Obama. Uh, is there an, a, a, a concern here that he may just try to push the envelope a little bit with the Trump administration, feeling that I'm not going to get any pushback from the new guy? Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, uh, if I were working for Vladimir Putin, I would strongly recommend <laughs> to him that, you know, in the first couple weeks of February, probe a little bit around eastern Ukraine, see if you can send more troops and more equipment in to help the rebels there, and see what kind of response you get from the United States, because it's a perfect opportunity to get a sense of how serious Donald Trump is about mending fences with Russia. Will he turn a blind eye? Is this all just, you know, rhetoric where he something comes to mind and he speaks his mind and none of this is serious, and in fact he'll he'll just default to Republicans in Congress and take a strong line on Russia. I don't think, I don't know what what Donald Trump will do. And I don't actually think that Vladimir Putin knows either. But uh, I think that Vladimir Putin does know that he's probably got an opportunity in the next couple of months to, to get a sense of the new administration. And a, and a good way to do that would be to yeah push the envelope in Ukraine a little bit. If things start to go badly in Syria for the government, out of you know due to a surprise offensive by rebel groups, something along those lines, that might be a good time again to push the envelope a little bit, uh, send more troops, send you know aircraft back to Syria, do something like that, and see how Donald Trump responds. That would certainly be the advice that I would give. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, his office has announced anyway that they're going to be embarking on a campaign-style tour to what they call reconnect with average Canadians. So this comes amid accusations of kowtowing to wealthy donors at fundraisers and uh, being out of touch is uh, one of the main criticisms, not just from opposition parties, but uh, from a number of uh, different political observers over the last little while. The uh, Prime Minister uh, did not finish on a high note at the end of 2016, and uh, this seems to be an attempt to try to get some of that back. He's still well ahead in the popularity polls, but he's been slipping uh, considerably over the last couple of months. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Henry Jasek, political science professor at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Henry, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Well, I'm happy to be with you, and Happy New Year. And Happy Bill. New Year to you, too. Hope you had a great holiday. I did. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the prime minister. Uh, of course, he had his time off over the Christmas break as well, but uh, a, a bit of a low point. I mean, maybe the lowest point, I guess, in his uh, his young tenure as prime minister. Uh, you know, and, and there's a number of different factors here when you start looking at Nano's polls and, and other tracking polls about uh, how people are, are viewing the prime minister and his work right now. Uh, are, are are they paying attention to this, Henry? Is this is that what's motivating this 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 Let's reach out to the people tour. Well, I think uh, the strategy is basically this, is that uh, he's stayed above 40%, even though he has dropped. Uh, I think the last I saw was 43, unless I'm mistaken. Yeah, I saw that one, too. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think I, I would think their view is they have to stay at 40% or above, uh, because if, you know, he doesn't want to get in a position where he you know, drops below what would produce a majority government in the next election and then have to dig himself out of a hole. So this is sort of like preventive... Uh, preventive work here to try to keep him above the 40 percent and he knows when he go- goes out and he goes on tour and he meets with a lot of people and has selfies uh, <laughs> with all sorts of people and uh, stops here there and everywhere that the people uh, you know that that it does boost his uh, popularity uh, in the in the area even though he doesn't really talk about 
you know, policy issues, but they're just happy to see him. Let me ask you about that, because there has been some criticism in the media and in, in social media circles as well, Henry, about uh, the prime minister. You know, and you mentioned the selfies and the photo ops, uh, whatever way you want to, to try to describe this. Uh, and but a lot of the a lot of the angst that's that's being spread right now are people that quite frankly just don't like the liberals or don't like Justin Trudeau to begin with. But in in those times when he was doing that, his population popularity rather seemed to soar. So is, is are they going back to their basics? Uh, back to what got them there? Well, I think so. And, and and one thing I'd point out to listeners: this is a very old idea that the leader of of a country has to go out and show himself to the people. You can go all the way back into medieval England, and the king probably spent nine months out of a year traveling around the countryside showing himself to the people. I'm here. I'm here for you. I'm your king. And he didn't have to get elected. <laughs> That's right. But what of course, well, actually had a more dangerous situation because there's always there were always pretenders to the throne, always people saying I've got a better you know claim to the throne than the current guy. Yeah, if they wanted to get rid of him, they didn't vote yeah, him out. They usually got rid of him. I mean, that, that's an endless the thing that went on, and of course Shakespeare wrote about seven or eight plays on this because this was a constant in the medieval period. So the king had to go out all up and down the countryside uh, and just tell people, here I am, I'm here for you. And uh, he would just travel around with the, all his retainers, and his court would just move. So he, he, he didn't stay in this palace down in London for 12 months, So just like Trudeau doesn't stay in Ottawa for 12 months. So this, it's a really old idea, is that you have to, people want to see the leader, even, you know, uh, and uh, they, they want to feel he's uh, concerned about them, that he's come to their area. And we, could, we know in the fall he, was, he had a quick trip on a Friday uh, uh, in the fall here in the Hamilton area, starting in Stony Creek at the Mohawk, Mohawk College uh, in, uh, in facility there, to town hall, talk to the mayors, see the councillors, zip down Main Street into Dundas, my hometown, and see gone to Pocones to buy a pizza. And then before you know it, he was off down to St. Catharines and the Niagara Peninsula, you know, just with, with just a lot of photo ops and uh, people getting to see him and wave to him and say hi to him and but you know, I'm sure that made all those all those people came out for it felt good. As opposed to the criticism that Stephen Harper had for the longest time, and whatever you think of Stephen Harper and his policies or the way that he governed, uh, he he was not a people person. Uh, it didn't seem to be. Now I, I I talked to a number of people, and I know you have Henry over the years that say, look at if you got to know this guy one on one, he's actually very personable and friendly, and and got a great sense of humor. And I'll take those people at their word. But but he didn't seem comfortable in crowds. Trudeau obviously is is the polar opposite of that. That's right. I mean, that's that's the thing with Harper. He would, uh, you know, he he wouldn't go out on these type of tours. There are plenty of places in the country uh, where he just never constituencies that in the whole time he was prime minister, he never stepped foot in, uh, including some around here. Not only in Hamilton, I don't think he was ever in Haldeman Norfolk for the nine and a half years he was here, but he held that seat quite handily. But he was never there. Uh, And there's plenty of other places as well. And even when people people you know people send me photos on. uh, when they, you know, former students, if they've been with the prime minister, somebody, and they have a selfie, or somebody takes a picture, and 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 I certainly had some of those with Harper, and and he oh he he was talking to somebody, but it looked like a very stiff conversation, you know, it looked like he was always talking about something serious, uh, looking them in the eye, and it was it it just didn't have any dynamic quality to it, but you get this, and of course my former students send me all these selfies with Trudeau too, and whether in Vancouver or wherever they are, and you can see there's a big smile, there's people milling around, there's probably a couple of the cabinet ministers, important ones in the background, and it looks like they're all having a great time, and you look at it and say, oh that looks so nice, I wish I was there. What about policy? I mean, and let's face it, when we start talking about the political landscape and what's happening uh, in the last couple of months of 2016 and going forward, I mean, there was a story in the national media just the other day, Henry, uh, about, you know, it looks like those deficit projections are out of whack and it could be years and years before the federal government actually gets out of deficit and, and into into black ink once again. Are those the sorts of things that people want to talk about when the prime minister's uh, out there in their community or, or is it it's something a little more superficial? Well, they may want to talk to it, but they're basically the organizers are, are basically told there's not going to be any discussion of policy issues. I, uh, for example, I have access the itinerary, and I give I give the prime minister's office uh, credit for being transparent, and they give a very detailed itinerary of where he's going to be, who's he going to be talking to, and what the rules of the game are, and almost invariably say uh, the prime prime minister won't be talking about issues. 
uh, there will be no discussions. It's really just photo ops and smiles, handshakes, or and that sort of thing, and then he moves on. So they're quite, you know, these are not about policy. These are just basically, you know, having an emotional connection with the leader. He's here, he sees you, he thinks you're important, but we're not talking about policy. Does that work? Is it an effective way of politicking? Do people actually change their opinion of a leader if they can have a a face-to-face or at least be in the same room or the the same area as as the the leader, whoever that might be? Well, I think they they feel good. I mean, they see him, he's important, they get up close to him, and they feel good about it. And I would think probably most of these people right now don't have a burning policy issue. And you mentioned the thing of deficits. I don't, you know, there's actually a relatively small number of people who worry a great, you know, worry about deficits per se, at least government deficits, because their their common view is, and we get these in surveys. We've gotten this over 30 to 40 years. When you ask people about that, most of the people will say, "Well, you know, that's that's the politician's problem. It's not my problem. My problem is my household deficit. <laughs> I'm not worried about the government's deficit. That's that's the that's the politician's problem. So I don't think they worry about that. But it's something that people who you know have to run the government or are interested in the running the government have to worry about. Well, and that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? I mean, right. let's face it. There are some pundits that are doing you know criticizing the prime minister a lot, and and Bill Morneau, the finance minister, an awful lot for deficit. Yeah. But but I don't hear too many people, you know, when I'm at Sobeys or anything else talking about the deficit, unless they just plain don't like, you know, the, the government of the day, yeah. uh, and, and they just want to criticize them. And they, they say, well, that's what they want to, you know, okay, we'll pick the deficit. Uh, and if he asked them, he said, well, you know, the previous prime minister had nine out of ten years of deficit. Were you upset then? Well, that was different. Well, yeah, it was because it was a different guy. Yeah. So I, I just don't see that. And I'm not trying to diminish the importance of, of financial policy. Obviously, it's very important. Yes. But I don't think it's front and center for most people. No, no. As I said, it's their household budget that's really consider. Could they consider? And they figure the politicians uh, will take care of it. They may may have a deficit, but they're 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 assuming they're going to be able to take care of it. And I'm sure that uh, you know, 94 percent of the Canadian people do not go. You know, think uh, during a normal normal day. Oh my God, the government's got a deficit. They they never think about that. I'm I'm absolutely sure. And uh, yeah, so it's not. Uh, it's, and, and the people who do worry about it, as I said, are maybe politicians and people like us who are very interested in the government and how they're going to finance things. But and and the people who would complain about it are probably people. I'm fairly certain probably never you know wouldn't vote for the liberals anyway. So the, so the liberals aren't much worried about that. I'm I'm, I'm sure. And, I mean, and I think that we saw in the campaign how daring he was when he said, oh, I'm not going to commit myself to do a balanced budget. We're going to have to be in a deficit to get the country moving again. And that was the end of the concern about the deficit. He just took it off the table. And and I think it's because people said, okay, that's something we don't have to worry about now. He said what, he's got, what his attitude is toward it, towards it, and we'll worry about other things. How do you organize and, and, and strategize about something like this, Henry? And I'm talking about from the, from the, the prime minister's staff himself, the organizational staff, uh, because, you know, we've talked about some of the positives here, you know, the, the good public relations that can come out of a, a, a tour like this, or the, you know, the back to grassroots. But there can, there can be some challenges to this as well. I mean, you don't know who you're going to run into in some of these, uh, whether it's a street situation or a town hall situation, whatever the case might be. You know, Obama ran into Joe the plumber at, at, at one point, you know, in his first term when he was running. And uh, he seemed to handle it pretty well. But at the same time, I mean, it can go south pretty quickly if you're not prepared for those sorts of things. Yeah, I think Trudeau has shown the ability to deal with, you know, uh, a situation that like that might arise. He's very good so far and essentially keep smiling, uh, keep showing that he's concerned and he's listening to somebody and then he he has a magical ability of just making a quick exit. You know, he just disappears, <laughs> so the so the thing doesn't keep going before. And he, but but the important thing is not to ever make it look nasty. That is, never make it look like it's a, that the prime minister is unhappy, that there's a confrontation, or anything like that. It's for him to say, okay, I'm listening to you. Well, you know, uh, keep smiling and then just get out of there as quickly as you can. And he seems to be able to do that. And I think that's. You know, all the people around him, they know, boom, they've got to get him out of there real quickly. And, of course, they could say, listen, we've got an itinerary. We have to be in five more minutes. We've got to be in another place, so we've got to go. Goodbye. 
thank you for coming. It's it's an old political trick, and they all do it. Uh, yeah. and, and I guess depending on on the, what the scenario is and the circumstance and 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 the atmosphere, I guess in the room. Do you go to the other extreme then, Henry? I mean, and again, this is we're getting into the politics of politics here. Right. Uh, do you stack the room? Do you make sure that uh, that these you know stops that the prime minister is going to make? Are friendly stops in areas where, for instance, where liberals have been elected and where you're probably going to get a big a turnout of, of supporters as opposed to skeptics? I think you're going to meet, uh, meet with people who are probably fairly disposed, uh, well disposed, like in the case of Trudeau. You know, putting him into colleges and university settings is great. So, he, as I said, he went to a Mohawk College facility in Stony mm-hmm. Creek. Okay, meet with the mayor and the uh, t- councillors in the city of Hamilton, and of course, they're likely to be nice because they're always looking for crumbs to come from out of the budget <laughs> down to Hamilton, and quite rightly so. Uh, and then over, well, coming over to Baconi's, the grocery store in Dundas, and of course, you know, they're always nice to whoever comes. And 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 I do know, you know, and and of course the, the some of the people, you know, the people who are active in the local Liberal Party know about this, and they're told, okay, if you want to have a selfie with the Prime Minister, show up five minutes before he's supposed to appear, and then I guess he does. I wasn't there, but I guess he was. Uh, he he probably did. They got the selfies and got bought his pizza and off he went. So yeah, you 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 have to do it without being heavy-handed. You know that that you don't want to look like you're tossing anybody out, but you try to structure it, even though it looks like it's open and unguarded. That you've got people there that are likely to be you know, positively disposed to the prime minister. One of the criticisms I've heard of, of politicians at all levels, and, and certainly even at the federal level, is, well, we only see them around election time. So this, this would seem to, to address that. And, and I know that I've already seen some criticism since this trip has been announced uh, from some small-c conservative pundits that are saying, well, there he goes again. He's either, you know, he's either glad-handing or he's, he's on vacation or something like that. And, you know, he should be in the House of Commons, and uh, that's where it should be. And, again, as a comparator, I mean, we saw that statistic from 2016 that said that uh, the prime minister was uh, was only there for question period, I think, for 34 percent of the time. Right. Uh, but that was Stephen Harper's number, too. When Stephen Harper was the prime minister, he was only there for 34 percent of the time. It would seem that the prime minister's job of recent, anyway, over the last 15, 20 years, seems to be to be uh, to, to get out there among the people. Oh, absolutely. I think that that's true. And, and, and the thing about Harper, and I will mention this, because, you know, I watched the question period during uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Ottawa, and I, I always get, would get frustrated when I see questions being asked. When Harper was in, it was always his parliamentary assistant who seemed to be answering it. And very rarely did I see, as you said, 34% of the time. <laughs> very, very, it seemed to me very rarely did I see actually Harper answering a question that was directed at the prime minister from, the, you know, from an opposition leader. So, yeah, it, it's, uh, he, he, you know, that, all the prime ministers have been doing that, and there's been actually a talk of a reform to go the way we, they do in Britain. In Britain, they I have, would love to see that. I love their question period. Yeah, the, the prime minister comes in for 30 minutes a week. He comes in usually on a Wednesday morning, as I recall. Actually, I watch that, that uh, every weekend. So do I, uh, yeah. Uh, it, it's really great. Uh, it's, it's really, I mean, because it is really great to listen to that back and forth there. It's very intelligent, even though it's opposition in government. Hey, you're right, and it's 30 minutes, and you know you got your 30-minute chance to, to ask a question of the prime minister, and 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 the prime minister only has to be ready, you know, for th- those 30 minutes, and the rest of the time he's doing he or she. It's now a she is doing doing uh, other kind of business. Yeah, and and, and the, the rules are, as you say, it's the prime minister only. No other ministers are allowed to answer any questions. It's only the prime minister. And and invariably, and I, I watched Tony Blair do this, I watched David Cameron do this, and now Prime Minister May do the same thing. They answer the question. It's not political sidestepping or anything. It's a totally different scenario, isn't it? Yeah, well, first of all, they, they told, they're tipped off, even by the opposition, sure. to what's going to be asked. And and I encourage people if you ever do go to London, uh, go to the Canadian High Commission and say, get me into the into the House of Commons, and they give you a program so you know at a certain point in time that a certain person is going to ask a certain question of a certain minister. So it's 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 a lot more intelligent, and 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 the people who are sitting there and who are watching all this have an understanding of what's going on, and the minister knows the questions that are going to be asked, so he actually can prepare for them and give an intelligent answer. It's it's a much better system, even though we're modeled on the British system. The British system has evolved into a much more intelligent system uh, than uh, than we have here, where 
essentially our politicians are essentially trying to you know trap the prime minister or a minister into something they don't know anything about and make you know trying to embarrass them in the british system they try you know they they want the minister to give an intelligent answer to a question he he or she knows is coming let me i got a couple of minutes left here. let me ask you very quickly uh there's some talk this morning from ottawa that there there could be a mini uh cabinet shuffle uh sometime this month uh, is is that an, a, another attempt by governments, uh, not just this government, but because everybody seems to do this after a year or two, to, to hit the reset button? I mean, do people get shuffled around because the prime minister is not pleased with the performance, or is this really just to, to kind of shake things up a little bit? I think uh, the, the prime minister and, and any leader is always looking to see, do I have the right people in the right place? And, you know, you can appoint people, but, you, you know, sometimes there's surprises. Some people perform much better than others and, and other people don't live up to your you know your expectations or maybe they're in the wrong portfolio so you know you, it, a cabinet's always a work in progress whether he'll actually do it I, you know I, I'm not, I assume he will do it I don't know I have any direct information but you know the, I'm sure they're always look I'm sure he's always grading them and you know he uh, gave each of them a mandate letter and he uh, told and he made that public so he he knows what he, you know he knows what he wants from those people. Everybody knows what he wants from his ministers, and I'm sure a year into this, uh, we're more than a year into this, he has a judgment as to who is uh, who's performing well as ministers and who isn't. And uh, in order to keep a, a strong government, he he will have to change people from time to time. But usually, uh, that that front bench, in other words, the front line, the the, the A team, I guess, of the cabinet, yeah. uh, that rarely changes, does it? Well, the, in the strongest positions, yeah. So you would look at finance minister and and the health minister and the attorney general and uh you'd look at the major ones and you'd say uh they're they're probably doing you know what what unless unless there's a real big miscalculation they're probably doing the way that you know performing well if they weren't performing well they would have to be changed really quickly because they are the you know those major portfolios are, are very very important there's one you know there's one portfolio that's really been a bit of made of mess and it's not her fault it's really the one on democratic institutions and this whole thing about electoral uh, reform. This has really become a bit of a mess, and I think it's really Trudeau's fault for saying, oh, this is the last time we're going to have this election system. He said that during the campaign. We're going to have a brand-new election system by the next election. Well, that I thought was very rash because it's very hard to change election systems and to say you're, you're, you're guaranteeing that you're going to do it. Uh, you know, within the four years, so and he's put her in a very and it's a you know a very junior person with very little experience. Yeah, Minister Monsaf, yeah. Really, th- he really threw her into the deep end, and it's be- become a bit of a you know it, it's not worked out the well as predicted. The good the ha- the good side for it is I don't think probably most people care, and they're probably and I think probably most people you know will probably think that delay is probably a good thing. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML.